can open up your Bibles, 1 Samuel chapter 30. We're in this journey through the life of David, 1 Samuel chapter 30. And as we talked about with David's life, he was anointed as king. It feels like quite a while ago since we started that. And at 17, David was anointed in 1 Samuel 16 to become the second king of Israel. The issue was that Saul, the first king, remained in his seat of power and decided he wanted to, as David rose in popularity, Saul's insecurity rose. So Saul's response was, I don't want to welcome him into the Oval Office and prepare the way. I actually want to take him out and kill him. So David, from age 17, after he kills Goliath the Philistine in the Valley of Elah, he basically goes on the run and for 13 years of his life is spent running and hiding in and out of caves and deserts from age 17 to around age 30. And that's where we find David. That's where we're at in the story right now. He's running. He's hiding. Saul's trying to track him down. Saul wants to kill him. And so today, what we're going to look at, I entitled today, From Pain to Grace, from pain to grace. And here's kind of one sentence for today. The pathway to grace is often laid on the paving stones of pain. I'm going to say that again. The pathway to grace is often laid on the paving stones of pain. And we're going to look at that journey with David today because he starts in this place and we're going to put some names to it. The spot he's in in 1 Samuel 30 at the beginning is a place called Ziklag. Say Ziklag. Z-I-K-L-A-G, Ziklag. Here's a map of where Ziklag is because it's probably not real familiar territory for us. So geographically, go ahead and put the map up for us, Ted. So the map of Ziklag, remember where we left David off, En Gedi and the Dead Sea, and where we were at at the Dead Sea area there, and he went to En Gedi and the caves, do you remember that? So there he was at En Gedi, and then he went over last week, he was at Moan. Do you remember that story at Moan? What happened at Moan? That was Nabal and Abigail. So he ends up marrying Abigail. Remember Nabal dies, and then Abigail becomes a widow, and then David marries Abigail. And so that's at Moan, and he's still on the run, and now today... Here we go. Oof, I get my hand right there. Ziklag, right? See Ziklag there? And it's Philistine territory. Now, what's ironic about that? Now, you'd think the one folks who maybe wouldn't be super welcoming of David would be the guy whom, like, there's probably a museum in the Philistine territory for Goliath. And, like, telling the story at the museum is who's the star of the story who killed Goliath? The Philistine champion is David. You say, well, why? So, Akish is the Philistine leader, and he decides to welcome David into the Philistine territory and give him some territory in Ziklag and lets him raise his family and his flocks and his herd. David stays in Ziklag. This is his geographic landing spot until Saul dies, which we'll get into next week. But this is where he settles in. And isn't this just so like kind of the human experience is that when people come together, there's something like friendships are formed around common enemies, so what happens is Akish and the Philistines, they're not on Saul's team. They're not on the Israelites' team. So they want whoever's against Saul and the Israelites is a friend of the Philistines, according to Akish. And so he looks at David. He goes, well, David, Saul wants to kill you. You must be a really cool dude if Saul wants to kill you, basically, because we think Saul's a bad guy and we don't really want him around. So any enemy of Saul and the Israelites is a friend of ours. Come and hang out with us. And then he gives him territory, Ziklag. 
And so David settles down there and starts raising his family. There are Abigail's there, and kids are growing up there, and this is where we get the story. Verse 1, David and his men reached Ziklag on the third day. Now the Amalekites had raided the Negev and Ziklag. They had attacked Ziklag and burned it, and had taken captive the women and all who were in it, both young and old. They killed none of them, but carried them off as they went on their way. Verse 3, when David and his men came to Ziklag, they found it destroyed by fire and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. So David and his men, underline this, wept aloud until they had no strength left to weep. So Ziklag today in the story represents the place of pain. Ziklag is the place where the Amalekites are raiding your life. It's the place where your loved ones are being taken away, where your possessions are being stripped away, where your home is being burned away. It's the place where you're weeping to the point where you have no more strength to weep. Ziklag is the place of pain. It's the place where you wake up and you look in the mirror and you go, is this really my life? Like, seemingly around every corner of your life is just another kind of overwhelming obstacle, another place of pain, another point of suffering, another heartache or heartbreak. It's just one disappointment after another. It's Ziklag-like stuff. It's where you keep going and this cloud starts centering around your life. And it can come in the form of depression or grief or anxiety where you just feel so overwhelmed in this place of pain that you look up and the Amalekites have raided the land and my loved ones are being taken away and my possessions are being burned away and my whole current portion and cup in life is in the category of I can't believe I've landed here. That's Ziklag. It is the place of pain. Now, verse 6 is going to show us there are two main responses to Ziklag-like realities in life. Look at verse 6. David was greatly distressed because the men were talking of stoning him. Each one was bitter in spirit because of his sons and daughters. But David found, underline this, strength in the Lord his God. So do you see here the first part of verse 6? So here's David, right? He comes back to his hometown, new hometown of Ziklag, finds out the Amalekites have come in, taken families away, burned houses, taken possessions. I mean, just a disastrous scene. He's grieving until he can't grieve anymore. Everyone around him is grieving until they can't grieve anymore. So this is the scene going on in Ziklag. It is an overwhelming place of grief and loss and pain and heartache and heartbreak. And right in the midst of that, some people get together and they say, you know what, David, you're the problem. We want to stone you. So here, here's David. Do you think, now, the, the Bible under David distress, that's like an, a, a, a huge understatement, right? Put yourself in David's shoes here. You just lost your wives. Abigail's now gone. His other wife is gone. Kids are gone. Your house is burned. Your possessions are gone. All your friends' families are gone. All their houses are burned and gone. And now some of his friends have gotten together and they want to stone him. See, that's one thing that can happen when Ziklag hits our life. Have you heard that phrase that hurt people 
hurt people. Have you heard that before? So psychological terms use this term called transference. So transference has to do with sometimes in our life we're on the receiving end of ziklag-like pain and suffering and heartache. And what can happen to us is if we internalize that in an unhealthy way and it begins to form this place of anger and bitterness and resentment on the inside, so it gets to this point where we want to like stone everyone around us, we transfer some of that pain and anger and resentment onto others. Now this can happen often like in a work setting. So if you're a supervisor, manager, and you're managing people, sometimes what happens is you're trying to manage a person or supervise a person to make some changes, and the person's response to you is a transference of a whole lot of like ziklag-like stuff that happened in their life, and you didn't even, I mean, you have no context to it. But what ha- it's like David here, David's like, I'm just trying to lead the people, and the people are now like, we're going to stone you, David. It's like, whoa, wait a minute. It's, they're internalizing their ziklag-like pain and suffering heartache, and they're throwing it upon David, a leader. That can happen in a work setting. That can happen in a family unit, right? That can happen in family circles. That can happen in sports teams. This happens like coaches. Those of you who coach teams, have you ever been coaching a player, and you're trying to coach someone, and all of a sudden, you feel like you're making good progress, and then the player's response to you is like, whoa, where did that come from? It's usually something with transference because a coach figure can come, has some authority and a parental type role. It's all of a sudden, maybe something in the background was ziklag like stuff and never really got worked through. And so transferring on you. can happen in a church setting. Happen to spiritual leaders. Any of you who lead in any capacity, you can empathize right now with David's day in 1 Samuel 30. Can you not? Have you not been in that seat where you're sitting there and go, I'm just trying to help. Why in the world is everyone wanting to throw stones at me in all of this? It's Ziklag. It's this. It's they, one way people choose to navigate Ziklag is they just kind of stuff it, bury it, and it gets frozen over in their heart. That's what resentment is, frozen anger. It gets frozen over in here. And then often it gets transferred on to other people in our lives, and you can see how toxic relationships can be. It's like it kind of leaks out and starts creating a toxic environment all around, specifically in David's community here. This is one way. Listen to how Eugene Peterson, I put this quote in your notes because I thought it was so helpful as I was working through this. Here's what Peterson says. There's an enormous amount of outrage in the world that's converted into angry plans of attack and destruction. A great deal of social action and political reform is fueled by anger. And I would add perhaps religious activity we could throw in there. The results are nearly always worse than the conditions that provoke the action. If we're going to do something about what's wrong with the world, the spectrum of wrongs from marital fights to world wars, from disobedient children to the destruction of rainforests, hear this, we have to acquire a better base to work from than our anger. Are you tracking with me here? Church, it's got to be a better base to move out from than the first part of 1 Samuel 30 verse 6. And if we're honest today, today might be a little bit of an assessment, take a little bit of a mirror and look and say, you know what, am I doing like, am I trying to like stone some folks around me in my life, like throw some things at some people in my life when really what I've done is I've internalized some of the pain and heartbreak of my ziklag like stuff and I'm just 
I'm just, it's just not going well, and it's just becoming frozen over, and I'm trying to like move out from a base of anger and solve things, and there's got to be a better base to work from. Second part of verse 6 shows us the better base, because here's David distressed. I mean, his stress level is at the max. That's why David's such a great life, not an ideal life, but a real life. You had a good person to track around with? Track around with David, because David's week's a lot like your week and a lot like my week. So if you have stress levels, things that keep you up at night, you can't sleep well, you're tossing around, you've got that pit in the stomach, you're, you're just trying to do the right things, and you're just finding it to be really painfully difficult. It's David's week. He's just trying to help these people. He's trying to survive. Remember, Saul's trying to kill him on top of all that. The king's trying to kill him. He's supposed to just be honoring God, doing what he's asked. He's found a new hometown. Then the Amalekites come, wipe it all out, take them all away. Then people in his own tribe, now he's got issues from inside. Now they're coming at him from inside. So he's stressed to the max. And instead of going the way his cohorts around him went, instead of going transference on others, he decides... What's the text say? The last part of verse 6. I had you underline it. But David found strength where? In the Lord. This is what we see about this internal compass of David's life. It's just pointed true north back to the Lord. He doesn't do everything perfectly. He makes mistakes. But when he makes mistakes, he comes back to the Lord. When he makes a poor decision, he comes back to the Lord. When he makes a right decision, he comes to the Lord. When he has a good day, he goes to the Lord. When he has a terrible day, he goes to the Lord. This is why the Bible describes David as a man after God's own heart. Not a man who's perfect, but a man who just keeps coming back to the Lord. So when we find ourselves in the middle of Ziklag, verse 6 says, usually we go one of two roads. We're either going to go the first half of the verse or the second half of the verse. And so for David, he chooses, you know, I'm going to go to the Lord, which flows right into going to one of his sacred companions. It's Abiathar. We met Abiathar back in chapter 22. He's a priest. Abiathar is a close friend of David who knows David well and who knows God well. That's a sacred companion in your life. We all need him. We all need sacred companions, someone who knows God well and who knows you well. And that's why a good next step in our lives is that maybe that's Maybe the next right thing to know to do is, Lord, I want to start cultivating a sacred companionship with someone. I want to be a sacred companion to someone, and I want to cultivate that kind of friendship with someone else. I want to have an Abiathar in my life. He goes to Abiathar, and he says, what am I going to do? Like, this, this, is, this place is a mess. This place is a disaster. And Abiathar and he seek the Lord together, and basically, the end of the day, it says, hey, you need to go and track the Amalekites down, and you can go get your families back. The Lord will be with you. Go. So that's what David heads off to do. So he leaves this place of pain at Ziklag, and he moves now. Look at verse 9. David and the 600 men with him, that's about the size of the fighting group around him, came to the Bezor Ravine. Say Bezor Ravine. So Ziklag, place of pain, Bezor Ravine is a place of grace where some stayed behind. For 200 men were too exhausted to cross the ravine, but David and 400 men continued the pursuit. They found an Egyptian in a field and brought him to David. They gave him water to drink and food to eat, part of a cake of pressed figs and two cakes of raisins. He ate and was revived, for he had not eaten any food or drunk any water for three days and three nights." So here's a picture of the Bezor Ravine. So just give you like geographically what it looks like. So it's about 10 miles from Ziklag. So it's a 10-mile hike to this area where they head off to. 
And when they go there, do you see what happens to David after 10 miles? Remember, they've been weeping how long? Long enough where they don't have any strength left to weep. They went on a 10-mile hike to go track down the Amalekites. And out of the 600, how many of them are like, yeah, we're good right here? A third of David's army says, we're stopping right here. We've had enough for today, which anyone could empathize with, right? They're, they're just maxed out. They don't have anything left to give. They've been weeping. They've lost their loved ones. They've lost their stuff. They don't know what's next. They've hiked 10 miles. They're at the Bezor Ravine, which looks like a place to set up some camp for a while. So 200 of them stay. 400 of them keep going. And David and the 400 come across an Egyptian who's been abandoned, who's been left. It's like, it's a picture of the Good Samaritan before Good Samaritan is inserted into our vocabulary by Jesus several hundred years later. It's a Good Samaritan story. So David and his men come across an Egyptian who hasn't eaten anything or drank anything for three days, so it looks probably close to dying out there in the wilderness. And what do they do? They do the right thing. They just take him in and feed him and give him something to drink. This is the Bible word for righteous. Do you know what righteous means? It simply means doing the next right thing you know to do. That's what Bible term for righteous. Right living. So David and his men, in the midst of their grief, their loss, their heartache, their exhaustion, their ziklag-like stuff, picture this now. How easy would it have been to simply let that Egyptian die in the midst of the kind of day David and those men have had? And they just lost 200 of their soldiers back at the Bezor Ravine. They're camped out. Now they're at 400, and then they come across this Egyptian, and they just do the right thing. Do the next right thing you know to do. Boy, isn't that a, Like, sometimes a Christian life, if we can just boil it down to, Jesus, what's the next right thing that you want for me to do here? Even if it's like... You had a terrible week, you made some terrible mistakes, like, okay, foolishness would be letting one terrible mistake like, keep piling into the next terrible mistake. Wisdom would be, even if you made some bad decisions, bad choices here, it's like, okay, right here, what's the next right thing to do? Take a righteous step with God's help. That might mean have an apology, ask for, for some get forgiveness, for some things that were a mess the previous, whatever it is, like, do the next right thing you know to do. In this case, take care of this Egyptian who hasn't had any food or drink for three days. Do that. And I'm sure David scratches his head like, I don't know what we're going to do with this situation. And now watch. Isn't this classic? You never know how what one seemingly small act of obedience, how it gets linked up to something in, in God's economy. Watch what happens here. Verse 13, David asks this Egyptian who had been abandoned, to whom do you belong and where do you come from? He said, I'm an Egyptian, the slave of an Amalekite. Uh, you think David probably said, say that again? An Amalekite. My master abandoned me when I became ill three days ago. We raided the Negev of the Carathites and the territory belonging to Judah and the Negev of Caleb. Can you see David leaning in? And, and we burned Ziklag. Can you picture David's face right there? He was, just, he was just doing the right thing, taking care of an Egyptian who needed some food and drink. And right there, he now is linked up into a person who was with the group that just wiped out the very community. Remember, his mission right now is to try to track the Amalekites. He's got to find them, which is very difficult, and now he's got someone who was just with him. Sometimes, right, when we're going through Ziklag-like stuff in life, 
when we've had the kind of week or weeks or months or years like David's having, you know what? Oh, what the Lord asks us to do? Just do the next right thing you know to do right in front of you. Even if you feel like you've got barely anything left in the tank to do it, just do it and trust God to meet you there. It reminded me last Sunday, I was standing in the back, sometimes before service, right, I stand in the back and greet some folks. I, I get to greet an extra amount of folks if I stand back there like from 10 to 10.15. It's a great place to like hang out and like meet all of you that come in for that time. We get to chit-chat a little bit and all of you like walk in and you go, oh, like this. But anyway, I was standing in the back last Sunday and before service was going and this, this woman walks up to me and she walks up and she got this beaming smile on her face and she says, Eric, do you remember me? And I'm like, ah, your face looks so familiar. And I'm like, I, I feel like we know each other. She said, five years ago, five years ago, you did a wedding for my daughter and now son-in-law. I said, oh, that's great. She told me the name and all that. And she goes, but the story behind the story is, do you remember that wedding? I said, I so remember the day of the wedding. She had been in a car accident, the mother of the bride, like a couple weeks before the wedding. And we were praying, and we were hoping that she would get well enough to be able to go and attend the wedding. But it was a significant accident, and she was in ICU, kind of in and out of consciousness. It was, there was a lot going on. And so wedding day came, and the bride said, I don't, my mom, she's just not going to be able to be part of anything on this day. And so we started talking together. She said, well, we're going to take the wedding ceremony to her. So on her, on her wedding day, the daughter's wedding day, we decided several hours before the actual ceremony that her and the groom and I were going to meet up at mom's hospital room at St. Vincent in the ICU. And we did that. We went to the hospital room and we had a little ceremony together. They were in their wedding attire full on. He was in, the groom was in the tux, the bride was in the wedding dress. I was in my suit ready to go for the ceremony. And we just had a little ceremony there while mom is hooked up to all kinds of machines and ICU and and she said, she goes, I don't remember really any, any part of it other than she's seen pictures and some videos from it. And then at the end of the time, with her daughter's head, the image I won't forget is the bride laying her head on her mother's chest in that bed. And uh, crying, of course, and just thanking her mom. And then I just walked over and just placed my hand on, and just prayed that God would heal this woman. Just ask the Lord, Lord, would you just intervene and raise this woman up from this bed of illness. Like, I, doctors are really concerned about her future. So that was like five years ago. Last Sunday morning, she walks in the doors of the church, and she looked so amazing. She looked so healthy and so strong, and she was smiling, and she was telling me the story from that point. You know what just brought me back? When I read the story, I said, that was it. We just did the next right thing we know to do. We didn't understand why the mother of the bride wouldn't be able to attend her daughter's wedding that she'd been dreaming and planning for for her whole life. And here's this day comes, and what are we going to do? We're going to take the wedding to her, <laughs> and we're going to show up in that ICU room, and we're going to pray that God would do something in all of this, and then years later, look at the story that he's written. It was Ziklag-like stuff for that family back in those years, and it was an easy journey out of that, but here we were, just like David, and just like, just take care of that Egyptian. And as you're taking care of that Egyptian, you're thrust in now to a big part of the solution because from that story, he gets to find out where they are and what they've been doing. Verse 15, David asked him, can you lead me down to the raiding party? I bet he did ask that. <laughs> he answered, swear to me before God that you will not kill me <laughs> or hand me over to my master and I will take you down to them. That's one smart Egyptian right there, right? He's like, well, wait a minute, before I tell you where these guys are, 
You're not going to like throw me to the wolves there, right? Oh, that's pretty good. And then verse 16, he leads David down, and there they were, all scattered over the countryside, eating and drinking and reveling because of the great amount of plunder they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from Judah. David fought them from dusk until evening of the next day. Now, wait a minute. Do you, are you following that? Dusk, evening of the next day. How long is that? 24 plus hours. What did I just say they'd just been through? Wait a minute. Did this story start with they came home and all their homes were burned, all their loved ones were gone, all their stuff was taken away, they're grieving until they have no more strength to grieve, and then they go on a 10-mile hike, and then they lose 200 people to Bezor Ravine, and then they find the Egyptian and take care of him, and then they're thrust into a battle that's going to go 24 plus hours long. Some of you are like, that's a commentary on my life right now. For some of you, that's the subplot of your life in 2019. You can fully empathize right now with where a real life. Sometimes that's really life, isn't it? It doesn't make sense. You're like, Lord, seriously, can we not even get a, a breath? Can we not take a breath? Can we not have a sleep? Can we not get a little replenishment? It's just one battle after the next, after the next, after the next. And David just do the next right thing I know to do. It's like, I, I got to chase these guys down. God said I'm supposed to take them out. I got to take them out. 24 plus hours later into that battle, he's fighting. Can you imagine the emotions inside of him as he saw that whole field covered with all of their own personal possessions and their family members? He could no doubt see Abigail and his kids and see his friend's kids. And can you just picture that? Like seeing them all over the countryside and all their stuff and, and the Malachites like strutting it off. And I mean, just the emotions that had to fuel up within him. And so they recover everything, 15 to 17. They, they basically take everything. They recover it all. And then 21, David comes to the 200 men who'd been too exhausted. They, they take all the plunder. They get everything back. They get all their family members back. They go back to the 200. Where were the 200? Bezor Ravine, kind of guarding the supply house or whatever. They're just probably sleeping, no doubt, resting, replenishing. Then David came to the 200 men who had been too exhausted to follow him and who were left behind at the Bezor Ravine. So this group of 200 comes out to meet David and the people with him. Remember, so what's David have with him? He has all their loved ones. He has wagonfuls of all their possessions, some of their like household goods. He's got the whole thing back. The group comes out to greet him. Now you'd think it would be like a celebratory greeting. David's day just keeps going. Look what happens here. As David and his men approached, he greeted them. But all the, look, evil men and troublemakers among David's followers. Wait a minute there. How many of you know this sometimes, right? Sometimes, right, some groups of people, those of you who lead anything know that sometimes there are some segments you're trying to lead, and some people are making it really hard to lead. They're like stirring trouble up. That's what David's like. He's trying to do the right thing, and he's got some people within his own camp no doubt they're probably the ones that wanted to stone him a few paragraphs before. Now they're, look what they're saying now. Because they, saying this, because they did not go with us, we will not share with them and the plunder we recovered. However, each man may take his wife and children and go. So what are all the troublemakers saying? It's like, hey, these 200, they don't get a fair share of this deal. They didn't go into battle with us. Let them have their family, but they don't get anything else. Do you see this? That'd be human nature in that response, right? To be like, hey, 
You didn't put skin in the game there. You stayed back and took a nap. We spent 24 plus hours taking the Amalekites out. And now you want to have a portion of the plunder. Watch what David says here. David says, verse 23, No, my brothers, you must not do that with what? Now underline with, with what the Lord has given us. So I want you to look at the different perspective. Verse 22, the troublemakers say, the plunder we recovered. David says, the plunder the Lord had given us. Anybody see any difference there? He has protected us and handed us over the forces that came against us. Who will listen to what you say? The share of the man who stayed with the supplies is to be the same as that of him who went down into battle. All will share and share alike. So, Ziklag is the place of pain. The place where you just, the Amalekites are raiding your life, where your loved ones are being stripped away, where your household possessions are being burned away, where you don't you can't see how you're going to get through whatever it is you're going. You can't believe this is your portion. In co- Ziklag's a place of pain. And in that place of pain, sometimes we're thrust into a sequence of events in our place of exhaustion where we're confronted with going another 10 miles. And then on the 10 miles, finding an Egyptian who needs some help and just keep doing the next right thing. And through that Egyptian, getting linked up to the Amalekites and then getting thrust into the battle. And then from that place... David comes home with what the Lord said he would come home with. He said, I will give you back your family. I will give you back your possessions. The Bezor Ravine is the place of grace. It's that place where you get back maybe many fold beyond what you thought you could ever get back. It's that place where you received your loved ones back. It's kind of like that that bride and her mother who share an experience now that they Never could have imagined on the wedding day, but eventually led to the Bezor Ravine, where redemption gets the last word, where the heartache and pain and grief and loss, they don't get the last word. It's real. It's difficult. But the Bezor Ravine in this place of grace, do you, do you see how, isn't this such a commentary on our lives? That's why I love David's story so much. It's so much a part of our lives. So many of you have been and continuing to live in such deep Ziklag-like realities. Like you have to be able to say, you know what, Lord? It's like my new zip code. Maybe you're just saying, you know what? I've just decided my new zip code is Ziklag. Like you, you just said, that's my new hometown or something. It's just one thing after another. It's, you know, things at home spiraling down. Things at work look like a dead end. Go to the doctor, get the report from the doctor. You just, you just keep going, right? Extended family, piles of bills, piles of income, piles of bills, piles of income. You name like around every corner of your life. You just say, you know what? My new zip code, my new hometown is Ziklag. And that's why we have to be honest with our response now to Ziklag. And that's why I think David's story can be helpful here. Say, you know, it's really easy to go down the bitter, angry, resentful road. It's easy to internalize things. We start harboring, like last week, anger towards God, anger towards others. We start transferring on others. It's it's easy to do, and you can empathize with how easy it is to get there, especially when you extend time and circumstance after circumstance. But my encouragement to us today, church, is this. Let's 
take the footprints of David through this story and apply them to our own journeys. There's a better base to work from than going the bitter, angry, resentful route with Ziklag. You know what? We can find strength in the Lord. We can make a commitment now to say, you know what? I'm going to take that heartache and the pain and the mystery and the heart. I'm going to take it to the Lord. I'm not going to transfer it on others. I'm going to take it to the Lord. You know, sometimes we take stuff to people that really we could, that really is only Jesus is to deal with. And it takes some abiathars in our life to help us sort through that. And then we make a commitment to just do the next right thing you know to do. This week, those of you thrust right now into some Ziklag-like decisions, you don't know where to go with it, just right now before the Lord, get some abiathars around you, look to Him for guidance and say, Lord, what's the next right thing that you want me to do? Just do that. And then trust Him to meet you there. And then trust Him that even if the Ziklag-like stuff goes on way longer than any of us want, here's what we're promised in Jesus. And I'll close with this. Here's what we're promised in Jesus. Ziklag may last 70, 80, 90 years on many fronts. It may just be one thing after another for decade after decade. But Jesus promises us this. When we take our last breath here and we take our first breath there, here's what He'll promise you and me and Him. It will be Bezor Ravine for all of eternity. It will be the place of grace. It will be the place of redemption. It will be the place where all the stuff that was wrong in this dark world, lost, confused, all the mystery, it all gets sorted out. That's his promise for anyone who chooses to be his disciple. And maybe that destiny can help breathe some hope and perspective into our own current Ziklag-like realities. Because the place of grace is often, right, the pathway, it's laid with paving stones of pain. But those paving stones of pain can be like an arrow to the Bezor Ravine where God will meet us there and give us a share of the plunder that we really didn't deserve and we know that, and that is grace. Let's pray together. Father, recognize today so many here in this room and so many joining us online, their own personal ziklags. Some have been really long and really difficult and really confusing. And I ask you today, Lord, to breathe hope and breathe strength and breathe your perspective. And I pray that this this message today, I pray, would be a, a commitment. We just kind of covenant together to step off the bitter, angry, resentful road and to say, you know what, I'm going to go with David. I'm going to find strength in the Lord. We'd find our strength in you, Lord. Help us do that. Give us energy in the Holy Spirit to do the next right thing we know to do. Give us the eye of faith and trust and confidence in you to, to do what we know we should do, even we're at the end of our own rope. And to believe and trust that one day we will get to the Bezor Ravine. If not in this life, uh, thank you that you promise it fully in the life to come. Thank you that redemption does get the last word because you get it. In Jesus' name, amen.